Hey everybody, it is episode 21 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you as always. I have Steve with me. Hey Steve. Yo, yo. We're coming back at you again with another episode and we're excited to have a special guest, Mr. John Shrupp. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this. Yeah. I've been, been hoping for this one for a while. Some people don't know John. People in our community know John. He's been around Rogue for a long time, was one of our original store managers when we opened the retail store in 2008. Has also coached for us at the at all levels of training from intermediate to to Team Rogue our advanced group, and is now a rep with Skechers. So he's selling shoes, still in the business, and we see him as our Skechers rep. How's it going, John? Thanks for having me. Good, 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 good. I'm John, excited to be here. Yeah, John is who we consider sort of a running savant of sorts. He can talk. <laughs> I think the word is idiot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> idiot savant, <laughs> if we, if we want to go there. <laughs> he can talk about anything running, and it is pretty much brilliant on it. It has the, the cra- this crazy memory, so he can remember the color of the original Mizuno Wave Rider from 20 years ago <laughs> or whatever. Wow. And, and so and then suddenly you'll end up in a rabbit hole talking about that, but you learn so much. And I must say, personally, he taught me everything I know about shoes. And it certainly taught me a lot I know about coaching and has taught both of us on that dimension. So we're excited to have John here. We're pretty much going to do sort of beer with John Shrupp kind of episode <laughs> where Steve is actually drinking a beer. John has coffee. I have water. But we're basically just going to roundtable on some relevant running topics because we do this all the time. And we thought it might be entertaining and you might learn something along the way. So that's today's episode. I'm excited about it. Yeah, so am I, man. <laughs> As so always. And by the way, this may go too long, in which case we might split it into a couple episodes. I'm just going to pre-warm it, pre-warn everybody on that. As always, we're going to jump in with some current events and to kind of kick this off, and John will be jumping in with us. We're going to talk about some some running happenings from this past week, starting with an update on the U.S. Half Marathon Championships, which happened this past weekend in columbus ohio of all places which by the way is not a bad city for anybody who's ever traveled to ohio i think it gets a bad rap but it's not a bad city but we had pretty tough conditions it was warm day on you know a moderately a moderate course i would say in columbus and natasha rogers who we said watch out for natasha she finished calling it she finished 23rd at the world championships in cross country that we talked about Several episodes ago, she won in 70 minutes flat over Neely Spence Gracie, who was second. And I believe Tulia Muck from Kenya, Kenyan-born, now American, who was actually the, the first U.S. runner in World Cross, got third, was in the mix with the other two until late. So Natasha pulled it off. Really, it's her first big U.S. championship. And as we said, the sort of segue to her move to the marathon which we know is coming so let's talk about natasha rogers big win for her i i'm well, I, I hate to say i'm right i don't get to say it very often <laughs> but we called this one a long way off yeah i think her performance at world cross was such an amazing vindication of knowing a talent was out there but not having had it seen it in a post-collegiate environment you know we got to watch her run at texas a&m <clears throat> and I had I unfortunately had to, I got to see her at firsthand as she decimated some pretty talented athletes um, and just ran away from them. And then we saw at the Olympic trials where she 
absolutely came out of what some people would have said nowhere, but those of us who watched her season that year saw it coming. That, um, was, that was 2012, though. So. Yeah, it's been a long time. She's yeah. had, she, had a, she slipped and fell in some ice and messed up her knee a couple of years ago and tried some triathlon stuff for a little while, bounced around collegiate fr from different coaches. Seems like she's found a nice niche now. Happy to see her running really, really well and super bullish on whether she goes the 10K route for 10K for the you know U.S. champs this year and maybe a, a world team or whether she decides to turn all of her attention to the marathon. Excited to see where she goes next. What's your take on Natasha, John? Well, when she was at A and M, I mean, it, she was—I mean, she was the real deal, and she did kind of. For if you're sort of on the fringes, she—it looked like she disappeared for a while, and so to see her come back has been really, really exciting. And for her to win the half is really, really impressive. I think she, it, she's running with Magnus now. I think right, so she's got uh, a good team behind her, and I think whatever she does, she's going to be good at it if she can stay healthy which is the key. Um, and she's just, she's one of those runners that when you watch her run, you're like, wow, she's really, she's just clean. She's and smooth. Yeah, she looks really, really good. Efficient for the marathon, as we've said. Even so. when she's throwing up immediately after the race. <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah. they're, they're putting it on. And 70 minutes. I mean, I think this is her debut half, or at least her Well, it's not her debut. Okay. She ran BCS half marathon, <laughs> Bryan College Station half marathon. I believe... It was a year after I was there in 2013, maybe 2014 or 2015. She ran like a 121. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't impressive at all, but it was at the very beginning of her comeback. And I think that was her debut half. So to go from a 121 sort of off of no training to a 110 on a warm day <coughs> in Columbus is impressive. Is she originally from Colorado? Is that Littleton, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So she's got altitude in her blood. And she, like, I think if she turns to the marathon sooner rather than later she could be a i mean she'd be a huge star and I isn't that this it seems to be the theme now john people aren't waiting they're 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 pulling the trigger a little bit earlier yeah i think um there's more money in there's more money um on the roads and in the marathon and certainly uh, people pay more attention to it if you're like on the outside of the uh the track and field or running world you you know you're more likely to read an article about a marathon or whatever um Certainly at the very elite levels, people are skipping 5K, 10K on the track and going to the marathon because there's much less, you know, like World Cross is now, it used to be every year, now it's every other year. And, um, you know, there there's even talk about dropping the 10K at at those levels. And so I'd, I'd might as, she might as well go make some money because she certainly has the capability for it. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see what Steve has her do. Because you've seen with him with Sarah Hall where she'll run the track steeple or right. something crazy and then go do a marathon <laughs> or a few like months right, later. After, right after World Cross she comes back you know so yeah I mean Steve is a really really smart guy and it, uh, yeah so anybody who's sort of attached to him you think you know they've they've got somebody good behind them for sure for reference that we're talking about Steve Magnus right. I think we called him Magnus at one point <laughs> then we called him Steve another time he's the coach at the University of Houston. He's been there for a number of years, but he also has a, a great experience working with post-collegiate athletes. He was the original assistant coach for the Oregon Project and worked with uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Alberto Zalazar, and we're excited. We're hoping we get a chance. We've, we've got a little teaser for you. We're hoping to get him on our podcast. He's got a brand new book yeah. coming out. Um, we haven't been able to, to dial in a date, but we've got a, we've got a soft commitment. We're looking forward to that opportunity, too. So that's Natasha Rogers. We'll look for her next step coming up.
On the men's side, it's worth mentioning it was a it was a neck and neck duel there. Leonard Career and Sam Chalanga were neck and neck in 103.04. It was not quite a photo finish, but pretty close. And Leonard Career edged out Sam Chalanga there for the win on the men's side to be U.S. half championship to win that U.S. half championship. So that's quickly on that. Now we need to talk about a controversial transitioning. Talk about a controversial proposal from European athletics that the IAAF is now considering, which basically would wipe away all world records for track and field pre-2005. The premise being that there were a bunch of dopers before 2005, so we're just going to wipe the slate clean and say, now only times or distances or throws from 2005 on are eligible for world records. And there's been a lot of debate over this I'm going to hold my opinion until I hear you guys sound off on it what do you think is this silly nonsense or a real proposal epic bullshit (laughs) I uh, I know that Seb Coe who is now the head of the IAAF I wonder if he's considering the fact that his 800 meter world record is no and is no longer even on the books If, if his 800 meter world record was on the books would he still be considering this John what do you think yeah I thought about that too and I think that uh it may be one of those things where he would say, well, I'm, I'm getting rid of my, I was clean and, and I'm going to dump my world record because this is the right thing to do. And, it's, and like you said, it's just bullshit. It's, <laughs> it's putting a Band-Aid on a problem that's well, too big for if, a Band-Aid. If we were certain or had any, any reasonable certainty of the fact that there were post-2005 records that were set with doping or that everybody who had run it had not doped, at that point, right. then maybe we could have some kind of argument. But every world record, in my opinion, is generally suspect. And to, you know, ex post facto create some kind of arbitrary date by which, and by the way, just so our listening public knows, the reason they chose 2005 is because they don't have blood samples for people prior to that with of any, that they're pretty sure that everything post 2005 they can account for for sampling and then they can go back later and test those samples should something come up but which i get that argument that's reasonable to me but i just don't like the idea of uh, i'm a fan and i just cannot stand some of those world records being gone because other people doped it it just i just can't stand it It, and and it and it if you want to truly throw a blanket of of guilt over our sport here's a great way to do it you, you can literally make everybody think everybody was doping or everybody is doping and it's like guilty until proven innocent and that's that maybe maybe that's why it's done in the europe and so they've got a different way of looking at things but i'm an american and i'm like you're you're innocent till proven guilty right. and it should be that way well right. and it's silly because as you say steve this assumes that everybody's clean now <laughs> that every world record now would be clean which we know isn't true. And we know in the last 12 years since 2005, the IAAF and federations have concealed positive tests that would have implicated potential people that might be competing at world record level. So to me, it's sort of like a magic trick where <laughs> they're trying to do this fancy thing in front of you so you're distracted by the sleight of hand Great on analogy. the side. Great and, and it's like, no, I'd rather look at the sleight of hand on the side and say, hey, guys, until you can tell me that we've got 
a more bulletproof system for catching the cheats that I don't even want to talk about who, what world records are valid. And by the way, why, why throw a blanket out and, and catch all of them when you know that there are certain ones where people have admitted that they doped or were assisted, especially when it comes to some of the Eastern Bloc champions of the past. Or the Chinese. Or the Chinese. They've admitted that they were in a state-sponsored doping system, and yet those world records haven't previously been wiped away. When So, so there is some ability to kind of case-by-case parse through these, but to throw a blanket over all of them is silly. I, I can't imagine this thing passing. I know there's certain athletes, Paula Ratcliffe being one of them, Dwight Powell from the long jump being another who have threatened legal action over Mike it. Mike Powell. Mike Powell, Mike sorry. Powell. Mm-hmm. Um, Dwight Powell's a different Dwight, uh, Powell, but Mike Powell f- who from the long jump who's threatened legal action over it. So we'll see. But it's, as you say, as you both say, bullshit. And we've tested every blood sample possible for Paula at this point, right? Because that's one of these these these... I'd like to get your take on this, John. You know, here we, I believe that Paula is innocent until proven guilty, but I still have questions about just that performances as an outlier is just so far, but she has, she has, she has been willing to have every test tested and done everything that she can do to try to, to be sure that people don't see it. Um, I know with, that record that she ran, I think Weldon, did Weldon Johnson pace her on that? Or he, was it the, the one that she ran, ran 217? Weldon ran with her in Chicago when, when she, she ran 217. 217. Yeah. He escorted her. Right, right. escorted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when she w- ran the 215 in London, she had guys on her shoulder up until the last 150 meters. She had two Kenyan guys. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> it can you can call it an escort. It's At that point, it's semantics. It mm-hmm. when you And you guys both know... Running by yourself is much, much harder than if you if you add one person to that group, it automatically becomes easier, and whether they're a pacer or an escort or whatever. Or a competitor. So, or, or a competitor. Or a competitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, there's that variable too. Um, I, yeah, she's innocent until proven guilty, but, I mean, that's a huge outlier. <laughs> well, and we just saw <clears throat> two new performances over the last um, – Two weeks, where which Chris and I pontificated about last last podcast, where 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 anybody going under two eighteen, it, it unfortunately for them they're carrying a, a you know a big scarlet D right. on their around their neck being being you know a doper, <clears throat> and and so I, I just say I I just can't abide by nor can I support any decision to get rid of race results without clear concrete proof, and unless your um, unless we already had a system at this point in time or a system prior at this at this date that their arbitrary date they're setting to be able to say no it didn't happen and no drugs aren't happening I just I'm, I'm against it so moving to a brighter topic but somewhat related because doping is ever present in our sport summer track season is approaching by the time this podcast comes out, we've got the big Peyton Jordan meet at Stanford that will take place. We've got the Doha Diamond League meet with a couple of epic battles coming that will have already passed. Plus, then you've got Cardinal Invite, Oxy, and a bunch of Diamond League meets, Prefontaine Classic, a whole host of summer track meets that are coming that we're no doubt going to be geeking out on and we <laughs> want people to be aware of so they can also... S- 
one, prepare themselves for the geeking out, and two, also start paying attention to this stuff. Yeah, do your homework, people. Yeah. Do your homework. And so to help them do their homework, I want to ask you guys both a simple question, which is what are you looking forward to, either athlete performance or race between two athletes for, um, from this trummer, summer track season? I'm, <clears throat> I've got a few things. In the shortest term, I'm ex- and uh, in a completely and utterly selfish way, I'm extremely excited about seeing Sutherland, Sarah Sutherland, who I used to coach at University of Texas, who now runs with Mark Wetmore at the University of Colorado. She's running her first 5,000 in a good number of years at Peyton Jordan. Um, I had the chance to uh, text back and forth with her. She's really confident. She's ready. She said to me, she ran 13, she ran 15:50 at UT, um, which is a pretty stellar time for 5K, but and was a all American number of times was up up to about fifth place and 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 went there she completed. But she's moved to the 1500, and I know with the system that she's in and the kind of coaching she's getting, she's going to be really ready for this 5000. And I'm just excited to see how much of a PR she's going to run. So keep an eye on that. And she uh, trains with Jenny Simpson. Correct. So there's yes. a connection there. Yeah, if you want a, a little flow track, a uh, flow track uh, uh, push here. There's a new um, video that they just did recently. I can't remember the name of it right now. It's coming off the top of my head, Undominable, or I don't know. They always come up with these names. Um, that is a really interesting um, documentary on on Jenny with some new information I had never heard before. But Sarah gets to make a couple of uh, cameos in there. Um, really uh, nice girl. Sweet yes. girl, and Someone and was somebody who of. at the University of Texas they said that she was done. She was never going to run again. Dr. Ted Spears, who uh, we're who is a, a affiliated with Rogue and who we our lead athletes went to go see, was very very cautious about her ability to get back. But he recommended a different surgeon. Turns out she went from not being able to run again to now running at the at absolutely the best that she can possibly run. She's been a fifteen hundred specialist recently. Look excited to see her run the five k. The other thing I'm really looking forward to. I'm really interested to see how Emma Coburn manages this coach transition that she had. We mentioned this before in one of our earlier podcasts. I'm excited to see her come out and run. I'm pulling for her to have a great race result and to perform really, really well. Um, I'm excited to see that. And then finally, uh, just plain and simple, the Prefontaine Classic. If you get a chance to watch it, usually it's on NBC. Usually they show it. If not all of it, they show some of it. We've got some. You want to see primetime great amazing races try to find that on your on your uh on your tv or on whatever way that you you download your sports and get a get an eye on that it is always going to be amazing it's a little early to get excited for usa's a little bit excited early to get excited about the about world champs but i'm most excited about those three things what about you john um well you uh you mentioned emma and i think that was that was the one i was going to talk about just because her coaching change i mean Leaving Wetmore, it, I think, you know, I mean, certainly people have left Wetmore in the past. And it's the always, opposite of a no-brainer. Yeah, it's right. like, <laughs> what? Um, anybody who's affiliated with Wetmore generally tends to perform. and um, But I suspect that her position now is not going to be that different, right? You know, her, her fiancé, who is now her coach, is, uh, you know, he's a Wetmore guy. So it's not going to be that much different. I've seen some video of her doing some hill sprints. <laughs> um, that's all we know. That's it was really hard to watch, too, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had a really hard time yeah, watching was, that yeah. video. And, uh, because she is just a train wreck to look at. And there's no interest well, at all and in seeing her run. No, it was, and, you know, she was with, uh, I think she was doing that with Aisha. 
I uh, saw Lear. Okay, we're getting off topic. Yeah, I'll be getting back on track here. <laughs> I saw Emma Coburn in a video posted on her social media where she was at the Red Bull headquarters doing some sort of testing in their labs or whatever, and they had her doing one-legged pistol squats <laughs> on a on a tightrope, basically. One of those those bands you tie between two trees. She was going down one legged, balancing on a tightrope, all the way down, all the way up. I mean, she was a little shaky, but she did. She's like on a slack line. You're saying on a slack like, line. Yeah. Like a slack line. She was on a slack wow. line doing one legged pistol squats all the way down, all the way up, balancing herself and all of that. And she did two or three of them in a row. I was like, whoa. <laughs> You don't really realize how great of an athlete she is, not just runner, right. but athlete, to be able to go over hurdles like she does. And, to, and you know, she, I mean, her form, if you see her, you got to find, just Google a picture of Emma Coburn going over hurdles. It's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. She's so <laughs> perfect in terms of, like, how she puts it all together. So I'm also eager. What about you, Chris? What are you excited so to see on on? on I've got this a couple things. I would have mentioned Emma Coburn as well. I do think her transition to a new coach will be interesting. She has said she wants to get break her American record in the steeple, so we'll she see if she can do that. I've got two more. One would be I want to see if Kara Goucher gets out on the track. Mm. I have a suspicion mm. that she might for a couple reasons. One, because she's eager to race. It's been since last February at the Olympic trials. Where where she, she, you know, that was her last race in the marathon. She, I know, likes to race, likes the thrill of that. She also has to prove something to whoever might be de- making decisions in fall marathons of whether or not they let Kara run one right. and or pay her for it. So she's got a little something to prove. She's itching to race. I have suspicions we won't hear about it beforehand, but that she shows up on a track somewhere, maybe at the Cardinal Invite or something like that. So just... That's what I'm looking to just see if we can get a little Kara Goucher. Well, we on built the track. a spike for her, so she needs <laughs> to oh, really use Intel. The spike. Okay, <laughs> Intel inside information. Well, she's she's had the spike for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and yeah, all the track athlete, it. but yeah, she needs to. So that's from our sketches. She has a spike. She to needs wear. to wear the spikes. <laughs> so that's one thing. The other thing I'm looking forward to is the Usain Bolt farewell tour. He has said he's retiring at London. We don't know exactly what meets he'll do yet. I would imagine he hits some Diamond League meets because he'll probably get some big paydays to do that. And he's an entertainer, and I think he's good for the sport. I just want to see how he goes out, uh, not only in those meets leading up to World Champs, but if he can go out and, and finish another triple gold with with 100, 200, and, and 4 by one that would be the way for him to leave the sport. So, And, I'm of course, Chris is proving – how much of a super fan he is because all I could think about was distance, distance, distance. <laughs> um, I will tell you one other thing that will be super interesting to watch. Anybody to talk about another discipline outside that's in track and field is this guy, this kid, this sophomore kid from Louisiana who now twice has gone over 19 feet in the pole vault. This guy named Mondo Duchaplane or something of that nature. Get on Google or on, on, on YouTube and watch this guy do the vault. This is a, it is To go over 19 feet is a very, 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 very small group of people who have done it. And this kid is doing it as a sophomore he's in high young. school. He, he's he's young. a sophomore in high school. That, they're talking now, will he bypass school altogether? His family are 
all tigers. They're all Baton, they're all Baton Rougeans. His dad, his his father, um, was a world class pole vaulter as well. His mother's Swedish. Anyway, there's a great article. I think I remember it's the New York Times. I think the New York Times did a did a feature article on him. If you get a chance to see that, um, if you have never watched the pole vault, I can't think of another event other than the than the triple jump. That is more fun to watch as an event. So um, a little shout out there to the young buck. I'm interested to see how he competes against the best. We'll link to that article. They call him the Tiger Woods of pole vault. Yeah. So if if a sport needs somebody like that, absolutely it's pole vault. So there you go. Those are a couple things to watch in upcoming races, and of course we'll digest those races as they come, so you get our take from the results. Now let's transition into beer talk with John. And I want to coffee con- talk. Continue coffee, coffee talk. talk. <laughs> He's got coffee. I've got water. Steve has beer, of course. Uh, I want to talk. Continue the track sort of fan geek discussion, but take it to the marathon because you know fall, winter, and spring are all marathons. We've been talking about those as they've come. We spent way too much time <laughs> talking about Boston Marathon. But I want to talk to you about the marathon and talk about what you're excited about from a fan standpoint for the marathon. What athletes, what races, what's interesting to you for the marathon right now? Well, to be, uh, I don't know, maybe a little jingoistic, I'm always excited to see uh, what a young American can do and the potential. And, you know, when you see someone... You know, maybe even in college, pop a really good 5K or 10K. Then you think, my, my first thought is always, wow, I wonder where they're going to go in the marathon. Because automatically we've evolved, you know, people, they get out of college and then they join a marathon program. And um, I, you know, so, and being in Boston uh, and watching Boston this year was, it. Boston is always, ju- I mean, the energy there is unlike anything. But then... Um, you know, this year watching, you know, Americans do really, really well. Um, Jordan has say in the last half mile looked like she was in the middle of like a 10 mile steady state. <laughs> She's did you just, see that coming? John, did you think um, that you could see? Because we, Chris got this a lot more right than I did, but I just thought with her 1500 background yeah. and having watched her while she's smooth as silk, yeah. she does have some bouncing and she does have some power output. Did you see this result from her? Um, or after, after, after what? It was two weeks before Boston and she had a really good half. At, at the Prague. New York, yeah. right? Uh, Prague. No, that at, was Prague. That at was Prague, that's Prague. right. Yeah. She had a really, and it was almost too good, right? Because <laughs> right. generally, if you're running really, really fast, yeah, she ran 107 and 107 change. change. Generally, if you're running really, really fast, you know, like half marathon PR fast, that close to a marathon, that doesn't necessarily translate to a really good marathon. But Salazar, who is uh, infinitely smarter than most of us, <laughs> is he figured out how to get her recovered, and apparently she didn't put out that big of an effort at the half marathon to run a 107. So, uh, I mean, she's just, I mean, she, she was the, uh, of all the top 10 runners, she was the cleanest looking in that last half mile. I mean, she was just like, she was just hanging out. Yeah. And, um, so she, I mean, she's certainly our next sub two twenty runner. Um, she's the one I'm most excited about. Probably. Give us your take on, uh, Emily Sisson. Cause we've been, mm-hmm. we've been pontificating about her I, as well. You know, she ran, a, yeah. she ran, um, her training her training partner Molly Huddle to the wall, who right. is, who is at this point in time also one of the best American 
marathoners right. and certainly the best American distance runner on the women's side if you consider all disciplines. Right. So what do you think about Emily's chances? Her, her chances are, well, if you've, got a, um, if you've got that group behind you, that Providence group, um, you're in a good place. You know, her upside is as big as you want it to be. She's going to run, you know, as, as, as long as she stays healthy. She kind of like somebody, I don't know who, somebody said she, she's like the female Deke because she's got big quads. <laughs> so she's really strong. And, you know, it, anytime you can put, um, you know, put some races together like she has, you know, your potential is pretty big. Um, I, I just can't, like, after, after Boston, I was like, I, I, you know, I didn't think Jordan was, I thought she'd have a transition period to the marathon. Her trans, her, you know, her transition lasted what? A little more than two hours. Remarkably. And, <laughs> and so. It's remarkably Salazarin. Yeah. Right? Given, yeah, I mean, exactly. the last time we've seen anything like that was when Salazar ran the New York City Marathon and won. And I don't know if he, I don't think he broke the record that day, or he was no, really he was close. like he was two oh nine. But he did it. In a, he did it in an Oregon, Oregon yeah, he's still in for the university. Hey, he's still in college. <laughs> so, um, so let's do this then. So, okay, so let's do way too early twenty twenty women's marathon team for the Olympics. Mm. Way too early predictions on that, because it's going to be interesting. You've got yeah, Shalane and Desi will be in the twilight of their careers. You'll have Huddle, probably trying to make her first team in the marathon. You'll have Jordan in the mix. You'll have Emily Sisson, potentially Natasha Rogers, and then anybody else that will be up and coming by that point. Usually you have two who are sort of shoe-ins, and I, it would be Molly and Jordan, I would think. And then there's a third. You could just, you know, throw it up in the air. Yeah. Because that's, that's still a long way away. Yeah. So, um, but and How old will Shalane be at that point? 38? 37? Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And she's a wily veteran, and I think I there's if there's somebody her. in there, but it's going to be a lot of fun to do that Amy to figure Hastings that all out. Will be in the mix still too. Yep. Okay, so that's good. Way too early. I like I like the huddle and Hesse shoe in. Though. Yeah, I'm not going to give him too much credit for that. That's like uh, yeah, that was easy. <laughs> it's uh, pretty easy, but, but no, like after. But he doesn't know his shit, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. uh, like um, Galen when Galen was finishing at Boston, he looked a little rough. I mean, he did. I mean, he all he looks pretty clean. Salazar spends a lot of time people working on mechanics. Um, uh, yeah. Well, the guy also dropped a four twenty seven mile right. on him. So you know, when he came around that last corner at um, uh, Hereford and Boylston, he kind of jogged around the corner, and looked behind him. I mean, he was he was he was ready to be done. And Hase just, oh man, she was she wasn't even touching the ground. So um, <laughs> right. she was definitely the impressive one. Oh no doubt, um, no doubt about it. Uh, and if have you guys ever know the the other guy um, from the Oregon project, the Japanese guy, Osako, who got he, third, he got mm -hmm. third. Mm -hmm. He and Galen have almost identical mechanics. And that was really? the first that was the first I'd never I'd seen video of Osako on the track and things like that. And I'd never noticed it. But so then I started thinking, man, Salazar must spend a lot of time on that. Like what? A, you well, know. I know he I does he, because and I he, think he, he picks tried, him. He tried. Well, he picks him. At, well, I think he learned his lesson with Ritz. Yeah. He tried to change Ritz's mechanics, broke him, and then realized that he needed a certain profile, right. perhaps, because he's obviously the most deep, maybe the most detail-oriented coach out there, and, and follows all of it. So let's talk. So we talked U.S. a little bit. What about on the men's side? Are we in a? Are we? In a drought, obviously we have Rupp, who's going to be dominant probably for a while at the marathon, but 
there's really nobody else that's but, showing a lot of potential. Chris Derrick is maybe going to be there, but but Jared Ward's already proved he's an Olympian two years out of college. Now he is a Mormon, so he was he's older than your average collegiate athlete. But I think Jared, again, he didn't have a great race at Boston, but he. I think there's a lot more to see from him, and he has a phenomenal coach in Ed Eystone who knows right. the the event and knows the, the 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 marathon. So, but does but he but he's gonna be your he's like a Brian Self. I was John just took the words out of my mouth. I was gonna <laughs> say that exact name. He's sort of your blue collar yeah. runner who who doesn't have the talent to quite compete with Rupp or ever push him, but is always gonna be hanging around third, fourth, fifth. In, chap- in, in championship type events, he'll run well, but in time trial stuff, he's not going to run super fast. So who else? Because after that, I mean, it's Chris Derrick maybe, but who else? Abdi's in the twilight of his career. Meb is done. got one he's more yeah, marathon. He's got New York and he's done. Ryan Hall is now a, a bodybuilder. Well, we have, we have <laughs> so another thing. Next? Well, we have another thing altogether, which is another topic conversation. We're not going down this topic today because <laughs> it's another future topic, but we have an ass load of new Kenyan Americans which could do damn near anything from Samuel Chalenga who watch out for that guy when he decides to run a marathon to Lenny Career who's already run a couple marathons and is running an amazing amazingly well there there is there's a lot of questions about that process of the Americanization of um, East African athletes you know it all started with with Bernard who America has taken on and, and again I just want to make sure people understand this there's a big difference between Meb Kaflesky and these other athletes that we're talking about Meb Kaflesky went to an American high school his family moved here significantly earlier I'm not saying that these other athletes aren't Americans they obviously are but I I, I do think America will be incredibly competitive in future but I'm not sure it's going to be an American born athlete right. or even an American matriculated athlete who went through a system of ours not that it really matters but I do think if you look at that Chris we have in the next in four years. I think you're going to have. It's likely, other than Galen, you may have a a, a former African team on that. You make a good point. I think there's even talk that Lalisa, the Ethiopian, might actually try to get U.S. citizenship. By the way, did you read that article in ESPN? I did. And a really well written article. Really well written. Really, really, he really not, makes you feel it. He did not have the day he wanted in London. He finished in two fourteen, I think. But he has talked about potentially. U.S. citizenship now that he's living here. So that's U.S. What about the world level? Obviously, we have a lot of question marks with doping scandals from the Kenyan women, particularly. There's an overhanging story. Apparently, there's five other Kenyan athletes that have been potentially tested positive that we haven't heard about yet, but is going to be coming out as soon as those athletes are notified. The day after the two-hour run? <laughs> I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. just saying. <laughs> there, well, and apparently one of the females in that mix that we don't know about is on the run in Kenya trying to avoid the authorities so she doesn't have to face potential sanctions. So on the international stage, what what are your thoughts? Well, things are so much different now that, like, like we mentioned, people are jumping straight into the marathon. And so you don't have... A lot of the athletes who are performing at the highest level, um, not all of them, but there are so many now who are popping in and they're really good for one or two or three years and then they disappear because they don't have that track background. You know, we're used to, you know, Geber Selassie and Turgot 
who've been around for and Kipchoge, who and Kipchoge, did Kipchoge, it, who, well, yeah, who he was, people forget that he was a medalist in the five K. Yeah, he was a world champion when he was eighteen. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so he's like he's sort of like a last of the breed, right? Um, Bikili, who is arguably sort of um, on the backside of his career, um, he certainly still has a lot of potential, but um, publicly blaming your shoes <laughs> is not um, a good look. It, it doesn't bode well. Um, you know, and so it's just different. So you don't have these personal ties to the athletes like the the people we were used to from, you know, the 90s or whatever, who spent six or eight or ten years on the track before they moved up to the marathon. Um, you know, Dennis Cometo was around for a total of like 30 months. <laughs> and, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I've said it before, but I think you have this, this system in Kenya where they're getting these young guys yep. that have talent. They're using them to make money. Doping them to the gills, potentially. Right. Getting their paydays from them, burning them out, you know, on six marathons in three years. And then that's it. You know, and then they're moving on to the next young guy. And so on the international level for marathoning, what is there to be excited about as a fan? I'm always excited about competition. I'm, I've, in the last few years, I've been more excited about watching races like Boston and New York versus Berlin and London where they have six rabbits right. dragging you through you know the first 30k or whatever the competition is where it's at and um, the competition is where you'll see Americans perform better um, because races may not be as fast um, so whenever there's I think in any sport, which is what sport's all about, whenever there's real competition, that's the most exciting part. And with all the talk about doping and all that kind of stuff, I, I have to, I start getting, if I find myself going into one of those negative spaces, like this is just all a bunch of crap. I like, I, you know, the reason I fell in love with the sport was because of the competition. Um, so, so give people a little bit of an idea, John. You know, when people run, uh, most of the athletes that, that are listening to this podcast, they're either, you know, 5K, 10K, half marathon or marathon adult athletes for the most part and they might not get this subtlety or this this difference between what is it competing at 26.2 miles because many people are running 26.2 miles to to run the fastest they can and many of the athletes that we coach at rogue and that you've coached yourself they're all time trialing in a lot of ways that we're talking about these athletes at berlin and at rotterdam and places that are all lined up while they don't have the same sort of escorts or pacers, they're dialing it in from the standpoint of saying, I'm trying to run 26.2 miles as fast as I can. Give a person an idea of what it means to throw down and, and trade punches over a 26.2-mile marathon. Well, that's like – it's it's kind of rare that you see that now. So when you do, it's like, – But we grew up watching Right, right, things. right. So, oh God, I, I don't even remember what year it was. But in at Chicago one year um, – there was in the last, I don't know, 2K, Wanjiro and who was the who was the other guy, um, the Ethiopian. Anyway, they they traded the lead back and forth in the last K and a half, 2K, like six or eight times, and they were and they were and Wanjiro was supposed to be sort of out of shape, and when they traded the lead, it wasn't like subtly like they would like light it up. And go back and forth, and it just gave you chills. And finally, when Giro broke him, you know, at 500 meters to go or whatever. But you, like, though, trying to beat another person when you're completely out of fuel <laughs> is completely different 
than like trying to beat somebody in a sprint at the end of the 5k right. where it's just you're just you're in in a lot of pain anyway but trying to do it when your body's telling you i'm sorry some of our listeners probably i think chris linked to it the final um minute or two minutes of desi linden's race in 2000 what again i always forget 11. which 11 where she had two kenyans that she was battling with back and forth and we we got to see that give people some people idea what's going on in desi physiologically and psychologically when she's still 800 meters from the finish doing everything she can do to drop people what's happening there well it's at that point it's it's all mental because the discomfort level is the same across the board and at that point it's you know, this sounds kind of trite, but who wants it more? Yep. And um, who can will themselves to accept that level of pain more? Um, and that's also assuming everybody is equally trained and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, Desi is one of those athletes. She's a championship runner for sure. She's, you know, she's not the quickest, but she's a baller. And that was one of those races that reminds you that there are people who who can do it clean and do it big well and for her and you know the the announcers always in in sort of silly fashion talk about 10k prs and foot (laughs) speed you know when they're talking about packs late in the marathon they're like well so and so has a faster 10k pr so they're going to have an advantage in the last mile half mile two miles which is complete baloney (laughs) bullshit I mm-hmm. guess as we said earlier, because at that point, speed your foot speed right. doesn't matter, right? As you know, it's it, it is more mental, and so to talk about foot speed at that point is is silly. Yeah, when when in the marathon, the the primary focus on the marathon is fuel management, and when you've run out of fuel, it's kind of you know getting from A to B as fast as you can, um, and so. It, you know, Galen's run, what, 2640-something? Mm-hmm. And I think um, his 10K PR in the top 10 Boston finishers this year was probably one of the fastest. I'm sure it was not the, the fastest. fastest. I think Karui hadn't run a 10K, correct? I think he was mostly correct. a 5K. At that point, he switched early. He's still relatively young. And right. Young, I mean, so, yeah. You're, y- yes, go ahead. Yeah, and you just, you know, leg speed, foot speed, is important but when once you've added the fuel management variable everything you know like all bets are off yep and you you know it becomes like who's the strongest who's mentally um able to keep it together it's really similar to what we see you know i like to make an analogy a lot about the 5k but at the international level the 5k frequently is not run um to maximum capacity but we do see it in the eight the other race that i compare to the marathon i think the the 800 meters the 5K and the marathon must be run similarly, although their duration is exceedingly different. Right. They're run similarly. And so what you're seeing in the last 800 of an 800 meters and the, the gear changing or the shifting and what happens over that last 800, sometimes people are just hanging on and they win. Sometimes people are coming from behind and they win. But with 100 to 150 to go, everyone is in the same hurt locker. And in the marathon, it's so similar. Everybody's in the same hurt locker. So, yes, this mental ability to transcend the physiological limitations that are occurring in the 800 it's lactic it's it's a lactic dump and in the marathon really it's a lactic dump because they are not able to to get the oxygen is they've got lactic because they there's nobody nothing's carrying it off it's just a different 
different maybe twitch muscle that's being a, 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 you know recruited at that moment but basically you got the same situation yeah who has fiber who has muscle fibers left correct that can be that can be tapped into so on a related note I want to talk about Japanese marathoning because there's this whole world in Japan with marathoning that I don't think anyone in the US aside from the geekiest fans are really aware of which is that Jap marathoning in Japan is like the NFL here in some ways I mean maybe that's a slight more like the NBA because I think yeah, Major League okay, Baseball so is is the NFL for <laughs> for uh, Japan but right. so NBA for Japan which is that it's Lots of per- lots of people participate, but you also have really deep ranks talent at the very fast fastest levels, almost akin to the U.S. in the mid '80s, where you just had all these guys who could run, you know, two fifteen to two twenty. But they don't have the fastest athletes in the world. You know, Asako did well at Boston, but for the most part, you don't see a lot of Japanese runners at the front, although they do have some history at the front of races like Boston, you know, from from years past. What's the deal with marathoning in Japan? And try to describe it for the person who knows nothing about it. Well, it's um, it's partly cultural. The marathon requires perseverance and um, mental strength. And these are things that the Japanese culture reveres. Um, the Ekiden in Japan is certainly um, their sort of go-to. Um, they're the and what's an Ekiden? An Ekiden is um, it's essentially a road relay, um, and it's varying distances. And at um, at the highest level, it is their Super Bowl. Um, they they have a uh, a New Year's Ekiden that lasts two days, and it's you know per capita has as many watchers as our super bowl so um it's uh, that's kind of what they train for in college like there's a there's a half marathon in japan where the hundredth finisher is still running like 103 something and these are all young guys right you know and a 103 marathon here is nine times out of ten gonna win right so um they train for Ekaden and the uh, most of the most of the legs are you know 20k or whatever and um, in the last I don't know 15 20 years that's been their focus more so than you know straight up marathons the, now in Japan they stay they run Fukuoka um, and those are their big marathons Japanese elite athletes tend not to travel as much um, and uh, Osako was there. There was some pushback against his debuting in Boston because the Japanese felt like he should have debuted in in Japan. Um, and his his idea was that well, you know, I'm doing this out of the in the lineage of Seiko and yes. guys who won Boston, won London. Um, so um, they have they have crazy depth. I mean, they're not super, super fast in 5K or 10K. Like, they've got guys who are running 27 low who are still, you know, 208 marathoners. And um, for if we have a guy who's running 27 low, we're like, holy shit. Um, but then they're running 214, 215 or something. Right, so right. They there's, a por- there's a support system there, too. We, right. we give people an idea of what, you know, that we talk, you talked about the Ekadim being comparatively in terms of numbers of, of the population and the viewership of being a Super Bowl. Tell folks 
what the major corporations are doing for for distance training in that country. Yeah. So here, when you get out of college, if you are at a certain level, you get picked up by a shoe sponsor or whatever, and you run for the shoe sponsor and they give you a stipend and you get some travel money and things like that. And in Japan, you join a corporate team and it can be Toyota. It can be, you know, any of the big corporations or smaller corporations. And you're an employee and you work a nominal number of hours, sort of kind of you clock in clock out but you you know you live in a dorm and you train and um they have coach like seiko is a coach now and um they they train for in like real endurance stuff you know half marathon marathon and uh you you know they the uh a lot of their their teams will come to boulder and albuquerque and flagstaff to get some altitude training and um they 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 run a lot. And, and if you've ever, I, I was in Boulder running Magnolia Road one time when I happened to see this team of Japanese distance runners show up flying by me. And there was probably 15 of them, maybe, no, it was probably 16 because it was like they were side by side running in two lines. <laughs> and it looked like a military march in a way, but they were distance running. So they're super disciplined, but running in formation essentially. Right. And I was overtaken by this group and you're like, wow, it was it was really impressive because, you know, it, w- it was like a team that was running in formation and everything was in sync. It was like all of their strides were the same. And it's just really impressive. When I was uh, living in Albuquerque 10 years ago, there were a couple Japanese women's teams who would come to Albuquerque and they would like every morning by, you know, clockwork, they'd run 20K and they were they weren't most you know for their level they're running you know they'd start at like six minutes a k and they'd maybe get down to like four minutes a k by the end so they weren't it wasn't like they were running really really fast like we think of elite runners doing um and they but it was every single day and then we'd see them you know once a week we'd see them there's a uh, a grass loop and we'd see them doing mile reps or whatever but they they tend to and this is a generalization they tend to run greater volumes than our kids do um and so that's why i think their their relative half marathon and marathon times um you know tend to be a little bit quicker but um you know i think our 5k 10k kids are probably faster you know by the end of college or whatever but yeah they they're there are some really good books you if you want to read about it um that just kind of give you an insight on like i always think man it'd be cool if we could do that we could have so many kids running really, really fast and, you know, it go, we'd, we'd go back to the days Rogers and Shorter and Joni and the Americans would be at the front again, but it's a cultural thing. And we just don't, you know, for, for our kids to go out and run, you know, a minimum of 200 K a week and, you know, they're making pennies and they don't have health insurance and all this kind of, there's just, they're just like I, I'm just not going to do that. There are other opportunities, right? Yeah, they, it's here. Um, but their their system is 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 a huge uh, fascination of mine. One so. reason why I, I like it, and I like your fascination with it, because if you want to dive into a rabbit hole with John, ask him about Japanese marathoning. We're you know we're <laughs> only like scratching the surface here. But is I believe in those athletes because they seem to be doing it the right way. 
Miles matter. They've got systems. They've got everything in place to support these athletes. They seem to be doing it the right way. And the reason why they're not running 204, 205 like the Kenyans is because they're not an EPO. But if you see an athlete, a Japanese athlete at the front of a marathon, cheer for them. Yeah. Because I believe in that result, whatever it is. So that's why it was so great to see Asako do well. Now, it'll be interesting to see, you know, as he really transitioned in the Oregon Project, how that changes. But we'll see. Yeah, I think there's only been one Japanese athlete that I'm aware of who's been popped for EPO. And um, she she was actually one of the athletes I saw running in Albuquerque. Um, And so she's kind of in, you know, she's on in the twilight of her career, but she's still running you know, 228 nowadays or whatever. So, um, Pasha, right? <laughs> yeah, like that's exactly. so slow. Right. 228 <laughs> but, folks. Um, their, you know, their system, um, has grown out of the Lydiard system, which is, um, generally sort of, um, focused on aerobic development. Listen and, to episode know, one folks. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and we, c- this is a tangent we could take and just spend all day on, but they, if you've ever looked at um, training logs of the Japanese athletes that are, you know, there's stuff posted online, they just, like, they got run, and they're not, they're just running, you know. They're not going fast. No, they're no, they're, the they're running, and it's, you know, sometimes during, you know, sort of development periods, they run like 50K a day, um, you know, two or three runs, and, but it's, you know, literally close to eight minutes a mile, which, you know, and think about the athletes that we've coached who are trying to break three hours 30 minutes which is what eight minutes a mile <laughs> and all of their training runs are faster than that <laughs> right and, and they're like i can't oh, break yeah th- team I, rogues is way faster yeah, than yeah. <laughs> and you know like i can't break 330 and i'm like well just slow down slow down a little bit <laughs> you know? which is a, this is a great transition into talking about training so thanks for the segue john you are a, a coach for team rogue you were my coach for a long time and but your style is very different from Steve's, all based on the same sort of fundamental principles, but delivered in definitely a unique way. So I want to talk about Lydia, but also Canova, because you kind of take you you're the first person I saw who could kind of translate Canova's principles that he's using on the best Kenyan marathoners, doped or not, and bring that down to an everyday athlete like me. So what are your twists on the Lydiard principles that are influenced by him and anybody else that influences you? Well, the the Lydiard principle first is, you know, you've got to have the aerobic development has to be there or else everything else is moot. Um, And so um, one of the things about coaching with Team Rogue is that generally like last week, Steve, you guys were talking about all these type a athletes Mm -hmm. and team rogue athletes tend to be people who run a little bit more they're a little more focused about what they're doing um they tend to probably run more than the rest of the training programs that come out of these doors um so aerobic development they're not aerobic babies that they started as them right compared to the other training groups they've certainly got a little more background um my f- because the marathon is so uh, focused on fuel, I think that's where you have to. That's that's sort of where everything originates. Um, and I always thought uh, in my head when I like lying in bed thinking about oh we've got to work out in the morning, what are we going to do? Um, 
the training was always like I remember in high school having to memorize poetry and you memorize one line at a time and then you memorize then you've got two lines down and then you've got three and you build until you have the whole whether it's a 14 line stanza or whatever you then you translate that to the marathon so um overall i i sort of like the idea of everything all the time where you're always you're touching on every system no matter what it is whether you're just working on mechanics whether you're working on high-end aerobic level um you know vo2 max or whatever you do a little bit of that all the time and then when whatever your goal race is whether it's a 10k or a half marathon or marathon whenever that approaches you sort of start to focus on that and you build that race pace to the point where you can do it with your eyes closed um, and it's certainly easier to do at 10k and half marathon levels because you don't have to pay attention to the fueling and with marathon once you know once you introduce the fueling then all those other variables change as well so um, that was one of the things that I had focus on anyway, where like with marathon, you know, I don't know who said it first, but you, you warm up for 20 miles mm -hmm. and then you run a really, really hard 10 K. And so that was all the training was focused on the last 10 K because you, anybody can go out and run 20 miles fast. Like with this two hour thing that's going to go on Friday night, um, you know, probably they can run that pace for 20 miles and then that's where th everything is going to go awry i would guess um but you know i don't know maybe 35k maybe a little longer but you've got to focus on that last eight or 10k so how do you train for <clears throat> that that end of the race this is a two-part question how do you train for that considering the fact number one how do you train for it number two how do you train for it considering the fact that we have this nutritional issue you know i like to say the wall is not a physical thing right except that it is in the sense that it's nutritionally based right but there is and that's why the wall keeps shifting and for people it's at 16 for people it's 22 but regardless people other than those folks running 201 or 202 or 203 they're hitting a two-hour limit when they hit two hours they're shifting so how did you change number one what is your view on that sort of a question of how you're viewing fueling and then being ready for what I like what we like to call what the race requires over the last 10k because that's where all that's when the nut, that's when it's not cutting time right. right so in physiological terms if you like read you know textbooks or whatever they always say uh, a moderately trained adult has two hours worth of fuel in their body right so and so the very elite athletes nowadays they're running to that two hours and that's why people they've trained to that point so that's why people can run as, as fast as they're doing because so they run out of fuel three minutes before they get to the finish mm -hmm. fair enough um most of, you've wor certainly worked with athletes who run faster than i have um but you know most of the people in team rogue when i was coaching there were roughly three hours mm -hmm. give or take um so they've got an extra hour to deal with it and because they're not elite athletes, they're not focusing on diet. They're not, they probably don't sleep enough. Um, you know, those, you know, they've got 50 hour week jobs and kids and all this kind of stuff. You don't, you know, they're binging on, you know, taco deli in the morning and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And so you have to, over the course of the 16, 20, 26 weeks training program that they're in, you've got to teach their bodies to burn fat 
at a greater rate. So you do that progressively over the course of those um, those weeks. And you, you like I think you have a workout where you have people go run what 30 miles Mm -hmm. um unfueled correct and that's one way to teach the body to run without fuel um more efficiently and um there you can also do stuff like we would do you know 20k in the morning progressive so they go you know six miles easy and six miles at like a race pace or whatever and then they later in the afternoon after lunch um, and it's an unfueled lunch, so they can't have carbohydrates. So they've depleted themselves, um, mostly of carbohydrate. And then four or five hours later, you have them do a run where you go six miles easy, and then you go, you know, eight by a K faster. And they like um, they go into a really dark place, and <laughs> it gets. But that's you're teaching the body to run without fuel. You're also teaching the mind to deal with the dark place. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, it, uh, that's one of the ways that you, there, there, you know, any number of ways you can do it, but ultimately you have to teach the body to run without fuel. Um, it's, you know, you never really know how well it's going to work. You have to hope that people aren't going to be taking a gel every 10 minutes. So, you know, they, um, but like one athlete, you know, during one of those double workouts we did, um, she came back. I'm not going to name her, but you all can probably figure out who it is. Um, she came back and like, you know, man, my, my second run was awesome. I like, I ran really, I was like, what'd you have for lunch? She goes, oh, I just had fruit. <laughs> I was like, you're not supposed to have carbs. She goes, I didn't, I had fruit. <laughs> you know, and like, <laughs> oh, so how's that going to help you? But yeah. anyway, that's just, so, um, but I, in the back of my head, I was always thinking about it as, you know, memorizing a line at a time. And you build, over the 26 weeks, you add a little bit more on to the ability to run at that certain pace. So and that, it's, it's very deliberate in that way, and it's, it's very safe. Um, probably if I were working with athletes at the, le- you know, Olympic trials and Olympic level athletes like you've worked at, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd probably have to figure out ways to do it differently. But with a bunch of Boston qualifier types, it worked really, really well. Um, and you, it was very coached, safe. When you coached here, you also were a big proponent of UCAN. Or a, or a you had a, was it UCAN Vespa. that you used? The Vespa. Vespa. So yeah. tell, tell people a little bit about what other alternative nutritionally ways to manage that nutritional fall apart. How, how, things that you've done or, or recommended. One of the, well, I learned first learned about Vespa back when I was in Albuquerque and uh, the Japanese who were there, this is part of my Japanese marathon fetish. They used a product that was very, very similar. And it's, um, it was supposedly derived from, I don't know, wasp stomachs or something, (laughs) you know, I don't know what, I can't remember what it was, but supposedly the Japanese athletes used it very successfully. And so the Vespa was the Americanized version of that. And, um, uh, the the sales rep for the company came and said, "Try this," and I was like, "You know, this is gonna be this is gonna be stupid." Um, and um, I used to go for these runs in the foothills in Albuquerque and just you know go like take the dog and go for a run. And I did two three hour back to back runs, and like with no water, no nothing. 
and I didn't put two and two together, but the Vespa had a lot, and I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist in terms of biology or chemistry or anything like that, but supposedly it's a catalyst that allows the body to burn fuel a little more efficiently, burn fat a little more efficiently. Um, and so I always liked Vespa. Um, you can does the same kind of thing, but using the, the starch. Um, I like the, you know, back in the eighties, you'd always hear stories about carbo loading and things like that. Um, I think there, and people used, you know, like in Boston, everybody goes out and knocks out a pound of pasta the you know, <laughs> night or two before. And I just don't, I think you can, rather than spending the last 24 hours of your training cycle trying to stock your, you know, carbohydrate stores, I think you can, you can do it more efficiently and where you're less likely to have a crash. Well, and they're also dealing with the uh, evacuation aspect that's right. of, a, <laughs> that's, of, a, that's of right. a pound plus of pasta. Right. You know, and I just think, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, um, you see now people are doing fuel runs a lot more where, and they're, you know, labeling now fuel runs where, you know, once or twice or three times in a training cycle, you do unfueled runs. And I just kind of feel like if you pay more attention, you don't have to worry about those specific days as much if you just pay more attention to it in the big picture. Where if you just eat, you know, if, if you're not eating Taco Bell every day, you're going to be better. You don't have to do those kind of things. Yeah. A couple of other training principles, and I'll ask these kind of individually that you especially taught me. One was about everything in progression. Right. That was a big part of what you did. Everything we did both across the training cycle and within a workout was always in progression where you started slower and started progressing through it. Talk a little bit about that and the importance of it. Um, part of it is it, it kind of goes back to that everything all the time where, um, you know, when someone joins your group and they join your, your group in the middle of a cycle, you don't, and you're going to have them go six by a mile on the track. If you don't know this person, you're going to have, you're not going to just throw them out and have them do six by a mile on the track. You sort of have to ease into it. Um, and that's the way I think mentally, physically, psychologically, you approach workouts where like, you don't know what you've got on any given day. So if you've got a 10 mile steady state that you're gonna ask them to do, I think you're more likely to be successful if, let's say your athlete wants to run at averaging seven minutes a mile. So rather than starting at seven minutes a mile and just knocking seven, 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 I think you're better off maybe mostly psychologically starting seven, 10 and easing into it and getting into your rhythm, um, especially for marathon, rhythm is such an important factor um, that you're more, those, those red lights tend not to go off as bright when, you're, when you start a little bit easier and progress into it and finish faster. Physiologically, you get the same benefit, if not more. Mechanically, you stay cleaner from start to finish. And for me, the, the mental or psychological aspect is you're able to accept the discomfort more because ultimately that's, you know, you're managing discomfort, you know, whatever dark place you go to, you have to be able to deal with it. And I think if you 
That's why I always, when I wrote race programs for people like start, you know, let's say you want to break three hours. Start, you know, your first 5K, you're running seven minutes a mile. So you're, you're th- at 5K, you're 30 seconds behind where you need to be. But it's easier to, it's easier to chase a time or a person in front of you than it is to try to hold somebody off or hold off a time. Yeah, a lot of people <coughs> give me grief because one of the final words of wisdom I give them going into a marathon is don't fuck it up. Um, And what you're doing is basically you're not necessarily giving them those early miles of getting 30, you know, 10 seconds per mile behind or however you actually you actually cut that 30 seconds up. You're not really going necessarily for a negative split in that way. And so many people talk about it being a negative split. It's not like your focus is the negative split. Your focus is not to fuck it up by going for that person that wants to average 645 or 650 or 655. You're making them run slower so they don't make that critical, crucial mistake early. Number one, get into that rhythm because if they get into that rhythm early, they're going to have a very hard time breaking it. And number two, allowing them to find that rhythm in the future through a safe and progressive manner of getting there. Is that accurately describing? Yeah, and I think the safety is a big factor. Like you, when you get into the last three or four or five miles of a marathon and all those voices in your head are starting to get louder and louder and louder, the better you can manage those. If, if you can stay in a positive frame of mind, you're more likely to finish really, really well. Plus, if you think about the energy expended, you know, let's say you were trying to start that marathon at seven minute pace and you go out in 630 and then try to back up to seven or back up to 650 you dug a hole already because you expended too much energy getting to 630 when you're when you're right. starting from from a dead scratch versus if you miss and you miss at 720 or 710 you haven't dug a dug a hole and now you can more easily kind of feel down to seven and pe- i always tell people if you miss in workouts miss slow for right. the first rep and it's so often the opposite <laughs> most people right. go out too fast in the first rep because they haven't felt the pace out yet they kind of dig themselves a hole and then they can't finish as strongly as they want. So it's like miss slow. And even that first rep will often feel a little more uncomfortable. Even if you run it a, a few seconds slow, it'll still feel a little more uncomfortable than the, the second or third or fourth because you don't have the rhythm down. Um, and I think like with this two hour thing that's going on Friday night, they're at such a limit that they're, you know, I've seen people say, oh, they should bank. 10 seconds you know they should go 59 50 for the first half and i like well what i mean what's the rule of thumb for every and this is for certainly people who are a lot slower but if you run if you want to break three hours in the marathon and you are a minute fast at half you're going to lose what we call it the rule of three (laughs) yes three or four. mine is the rule of three and that is that is an exceedingly generous rule. Right. In my experience with marathoning, especially <laughs> people be who are not there, it's it's way more than that. But I just use the rule of three because it is illustrates a pretty basic concept that once an athlete understands and can wrap their brain around, they're much more amenable to making those adjustments. I think I've just gotten to the point now, and I asked you about the negative split because I've gotten to the point now where I've become real, have become to realize. Um, and one of your former athletes, who I inherited immediately, brought this to my attention. I'm going to name check Mr. Uh, Mr. Mark Bergman. I'm not sure that he listens to this podcast on a consistent basis. But when you when when you 
transitioned out of Team Rogue and I transitioned into Team Rogue, and we were literally back-to-back coaches of that group. And many people had gotten grown accustomed to the style of, of coaching and, more importantly, the kind of training modalities you put people through. But my training program was nearly mirror image of yours. Intent were different and approach was different, but very similar. And I remember sitting down with Mark Bergman prior to his big race, which I had only been coaching him for three months or four months, and he was expecting me to talk about a negative split because I spent so many years really pushing the negative split. Of course, just for people's reference, I pushed negative split to people who were, you know, three-hour marathoners, but I knew their talent level was 315, but they were never, they hadn't done the work yet to get there. And so negative splitting really meant that their talent level was going to get them in a really good spot, even if the race result didn't go that way. But Mark was one of the very first athletes and he had been heavily influenced by you. And he said to me, Steve, you're going to fight me on this, but I want to do a slightly positive split. Of course, my first reaction was, number one, I'm trying to keep continuity with the group of people and, and make sure that the water's not too choppy from a transition standpoint. But I'm, in my brain, I'm saying, no, 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 that's negative split. His, his articulation of the reasoning that he gave for why he was doing that, I listened, which frequently coaches don't do and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back I'm just saying for people out there who have coaches that aren't our coaches many coaches don't listen but I listened to this athlete and I realized this is the best plan for him the the window of margin that he had to reach the goal time that he wanted to was so fine compared to where his current fitness is as we talk about this frequently where do you think you are currently from a fitness perspective and then what your goal is in terms of what you want to run and how big a bridge do we have to build psychologically to get you to get from what you know you're physically capable of to where you wanted to be and in his case it was no bridge they were literally the same building they were literally the same structure. He just wanted the permission to not have to negative split because he was really afraid he wasn't going to get there. And, you know, I just had the ears to hear that day and listened to him. And damn if the guy didn't run within five seconds what he predicted to run. He suffered exponent. I mean, he suffered to a degree of which um, I don't know that I've seen in too many other athletes the, his willingness at that point in his running career to sacrifice everything for his race result and the way he executed it really was a sea change in the way that I looked at the way I approach racing all this long diatribe to basically make the point we are not talking about a negative split we're talking about utilizing negative split is nearly irrelevant unless you are exceedingly more fit than the time that you're trying to run for a goal time what you've been talking about, John, is how do you get over on the race? Like, How do you manage these right. nutritional and training limitations and create based on the course profile and the course undulations and the twists and the turns and all the things? You don't give per- somebody a race plan for Boston that's the same race plan for New York because they're completely different races. Talk a little bit about that idea that I'm trying to push, which is it's not a negative split. It's a It's a getting to the end of the race with some juice right yeah it's getting getting with some juice but also coming out of it with a positive experience because i mean like there's you know there's always a letdown everybody you know you fit you've got six months of training waking up early in the morning you know sacrificing family stuff doing whatever going through the training and then invariably after the race there's this letdown and if you have a negative race where you know you finish distraught for whatever reason it's harder to come out of that and part of my idea at the time with that group 
was to keep people motivated and positive and forward thinking as long as possible. For like the 18 month right. window or the 24 month window as we've talked about in prior podcasts. Right. You didn't want to destroy them to the point that there was so much to rebuild in order right. to even get back. It might take you three months to get them in a physiological psych- in a psychological position where physiologically they were already way ahead of that, but they yeah. didn't know it. Well, think about how many athletes we've had. They, they get injured and you miss them for three or four or five or six months and come back and you have to start all over. Mm-hmm. And starting over, is that's the hardest part because your body and your mind remember things differently. So And then you, then you have to, you know, while everybody else is doing, you know, hill reps or whatever, you've got somebody doing strides on the grass <laughs> by themselves. Mm-hmm. And so you want the group element was really, really important. And to keep the group together, you kind of had to, I don't want to say you had to back off of it or back out of the really, really intense stuff, but you had to kind of ease everybody into everything to keep people healthier mentally and physically a lot longer so that you didn't have people disappearing for six months because they were and a really And a part of place. that was sort of this concept of progression. We talked about it in, in workouts or races where you start slower than you think and you progress down. But it also happens that progression should happen over the course of a training cycle. Right. I'll never forget this was about four weeks before my current 10K PR. We had a 2-1-2 workout at the track. Steve was coaching me at the time. Two miles at 10K pace, one mile at 10K pace, and then two more miles at 10K pace. That's the Stan Huntsman special, by the way. Yeah. That, and my, my former collegiate coach, I have to tip my hat to where the <laughs> credit is due. May he rest in peace. Yes. So so that workout was on the schedule, and I'll never forget, we got to the track, and a relatively new member of Team Rogue at the time asked me, what paces are we doing? And I said, 540. That was my goal, 10K pace. He said, oh, okay, so we're starting at 550 and working down, and then maybe getting a little faster. At the end. I'm like, no, it's 540 from the gun. <laughs> Because at that time, eighty-five it, second one, yeah. rep, rep, uh, rep, first lap of the man, exactly. first lap of the first four hundred, eighty-five seconds. Second lap, eighty-five seconds. And <laughs> I promptly went out and did the workout like that. But you know, because I was in the mode of okay, it's four weeks till race day, it's go time. There's no more progression. It's right. time to be on. But I always approach my training cycles as you know, if I'd done that workout three months earlier you give yourself some leeway. Right. You start a little slower, you work down because you're all, you're wanting to stay away from that edge for as long as possible. So how does that progression concept work through a training cycle? Well, it, it's, this is like the, what I think the Lydiard principles are five, right? And that's one of them. You don't train beyond your, your capabilities at that moment. And, um, you know, at, at various times they've called it um, date pace, you know, whatever. Um, you ease into things when you're new at something to find out where you are. Now, when you're six weeks out from whatever your race is, you that's when it's time to put the screws to things and you don't, you know, you're practicing levels of discomfort that you didn't have to practice before. So you're when you do your six by a K or whatever you're doing, you kind of have to, the, those, the variation is a lot smaller. 
you know, where you're, you're trying to hit reps a little more specifically rather than, okay, we're going to ease into it and see how everybody feels and all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, okay, we need to run really, really fast from the get go. And that's the way we're going to do it. So, you know, six months is a long time. And <laughs> some, you know, some yes. people, some people get fit really, really quickly and some people take a lot more time. And so in that group dynamic, you have to ease into it to sort of keep everybody on the same page. Otherwise, in the last six weeks, you've got 11 different workouts going on. I had and an athlete say to me recently, I know where we are in our training cycle based on whether you say, hey, first rep doesn't matter. Just get comfortable, see where you're at. Or if that's early in the training cycle. Right. <laughs> and late is shut the fuck up and do the work. Yeah. Because I'm not even going to mess with it. And I think people, they're, they're always shocked at that transition I've been transitioning them mentally and through training workouts to be ready for that. But frequently, we don't, they're the, what we call go time is so extended in marathon training. You know, in 5K and 10K training, I'm, I'm going go time all the time with my athletes because they're able to recover and recuperate so quickly. In a marathon, you can't. But that, that sort of subtle shift, and it was a pretty astute comment the athlete made he hadn't been in our programming very long maybe they had gone through two cycles or three cycles he's like oh i know where we are when when all of a sudden the shift is shut up and do the work instead of oh don't worry about it just kind of get yourself where you need to get um and, and you know that is that is not i won't i will admit that that's not an incredibly well thought thought out physiological principle but having coached for over 20 years you know when the screws need to get 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 put and in marathon training applying the screws is the last part right. of the puzzle. It's well, the last the, thing the, you do. The duration of training is so much that you can, it's much easier to screw somebody up at that point than it is in 5K, 10K training. Well, in 5K, 10K training, work races should be doing that. Right. Races should be providing those readjustments based on either where current fitness is or what maybe a few of the pages you didn't turn over appropriately in the training cycle. And you try to get there six to eight weeks out beforehand because you might have some time to get the physiological responses you're looking for. In marathon training, we don't have that. As you said yourself, watching Jordan Hesay do a half marathon what we what we might have considered at the time given the fact that she ran 67 minutes a command performance in the half marathon how in the world was she going to back that up well they obviously had a plan and they knew where they were going to be and what they were going to get accomplished you know i was i wasn't as surprised by her race and running that 67 at Ch in the czech republic because we had seen her run at houston and i actually got to be there and the level of patience she showed and exhibited in that race you could tell that person was being was doing following a plan right. and that plan was going to be putting the screws to her late rather than too early and you know she's a consummate she's a coachable athlete so she was doing exactly what was being asked of her and i think that's one of the things that training has evolved nowadays with the way racing goes most elite level athletes are almost year round within six to eight weeks of absolute peak fitness for whatever race they're gonna do. And it used to be you spent the better part of six months getting ready to train for something. Well, that's the an that's an anti-Lydiard concept. So while we are heavily influenced by Lydiard, John, you mentioned this earlier. We're This is awesome because we're kind of referencing back to the first episode. Yep. But you talked earlier about the fact that um, you do everything all the time. Um, and I did that as a collegiate coach because I knew my athlete might run an 800-meter race and then 
their 10K runner. And I knew that we were prepping for a 10K race later in the season, but they might do an 800 and a 1600 in the indoor season for various reasons. There's, there's, I don't want to go into what they are, but they're multifaceted for why I might do that. But ultimately, the idea there was just to get them ready for that race that they were going to be getting ready for later. And I had the ample opportunity to put to put suffering in there. In the marathon, especially, we don't get that chance. We don't have the opportunity to, to dry fire. There's no firing this firing the gun just to see if it'll work because the, it it it's too long too hard too difficult to do well and like the the old uh australian marathoning system that uh um deke and um deke is uh is De Costella. De Costella. yeah mm-hmm. um and i think his coach Cloacy, yeah. who came from the university of texas university of houston was he at university yeah of houston? university okay. of houston yeah. so um, that system was a little bit of everything all the time, year mm-hmm. round. You did the, for the most part, the same workouts every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Saturday. Always long run, always uh, medium long run every week. And so then you sort of freshened up for whatever the event was, whether it was cross country or a marathon or a 10K or whatever. And I think nowadays, the mindset that so many athletes have is that they're they don't have maybe they don't have the patience to spend three or four months just going out and running miles because you see like at least when i tell people this hey for the next few weeks we're just going to run and run and they're like we're not going to do any workouts <laughs> you know and they, they just they want it they want to be doing something all the time it's just it's maybe it's a more of a cultural thing um and so th- the australian system I think is was sort of the lead up into the system that you see a lot of people doing now where um, there's a little bit of everything all the time and the volumes don't have to be great or whatever but it's just enough to sort of keep you moderately fit all the time okay so we'll pause there take a break on coffee and beer with John we'll wrap up episode 21 and then pick it up right where we left off with episode 22, continuing this conversation with John. So thanks, everybody, for joining us on this one. Thanks for the journey. Thanks to John and Steve. We will wrap up episode 21. As always, check us out at roguerunning.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rogue Running. And we'll talk to you next time.